called in. I probably should feel guilty, oh. but I'm just so glad it's just the two of us. Now. I'm ecstatic. <laughs> I know a cute little bed and breakfast we can go to this weekend. Oh, really? Thank you. What a relief this is. I've made my choice. Look at her. I've found an angel. An angel who wears an awful lot of makeup. I'd never noticed that before. Faye doesn't paint her face up like that. And they have the cutest little four-poster beds in each room. It sounds lovely. My, she uses the word cute a lot. I'm cute. This cafe is cute. Now the bed is cute. Faye used the word jejun last night. I feel trapped. Can't breathe. Wait, what are you doing? It's just your fear talking. She's a wonderful woman. She's the one. She's perfect. And then I ran into Roz after the show, and she told me the cutest little story. Cassandra, but... we need to talk. Welcome to We Need to Talk. Uh, today we have a brilliant storyteller on. <laughs> he uses very poetic language. Uh, if you've read On the Road by Jack Kerouac. A lot of people do, Mom. Okay. Can't tell I'm home visiting. <laughs> uh, if you... If you've read On the Road, then this tale might seem familiar. And it I think it's an even more interesting version uh, that he tells. Uh, a few things I want to get across before we get into it. Um, we're disregarding copyright this episode. Um, and thank you to Kelsey Grammer for doing our introduction. Uh, we have some great music from the late 60s. Uh, as part of this podcast, and I don't have my usual microphone to do this, so the quality may be a little off. But besides those things, you, you probably want to listen to this as you're laying on the floor, maybe on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, a little hungover, as I was when I did this interview. Um, what, Mom? <laughs> Other than that, just get in, get into that mindset. You know, light up a lava lamp. Let's get to it. So we're here today with David. David. Yeah, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are we? I I had never talked to you really previously. I've always kind of admired you from afar. I think. <laughs> That's mainly which is, is the role that I used to take until I got to know him. Yeah, no, I don't think I ever really had a chance. Well, and that's the course of in Dan's case the Thursday field trips. Yeah. So oh, okay. So I discovered you know fifth graders on the intellectual level. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Same. It's a lot of cohesiveness there. High school is a little uh, they're a little too serious. Yeah, you have to like really They're, think about what you're saying. <laughs> they actually worry about their future a little too. It's yeah, like, I, like, I already have relax. enough of that in my own life. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, you can really get in trouble. But... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you you got a master's in geography. What would you study before that? Geography. 
I mean, I it's, it's the sixties guy. I'm 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 an original mid sixties dropout. Yeah. Nice. So you know I went off to school in Eastern Washington, straight out of high school. You know, it was like going to thirteenth grade. Yeah. Uh, only it turned out it was way different than going to thirteenth grade, and <laughs> way more interesting at the same time. Of course. And that was also the height, the real ramp up of the Vietnam War. So. Um, so you're from Seattle. Uh, no, I always kind of regretted or even resented that I wasn't from Seattle. I'm from Eastern Washington, okay. Tri Cities. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I mean, one of my earliest acts at as a Washington State University student was burning my draft card on the uh, steps of the oh, uh, student union building there. <laughs> like that must have been about early September of 1965. Was there just a whole group of people doing that? No. No, just you? There's just me and a couple of friends. Nice. Um, uh, so, like I said, you know, it's just actually leaving home and being out on my own all coincided with just a whole bunch of stuff. And, and I wasn't really ready to go to school. Yeah. yeah. You know, given, um, even though that was, the, you know, the arc in those days and still, still is there is. for a lot of yeah, people. It was for me. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, in Europe they have a tradition of like taking a, a wander year off yeah. or something. Yeah. And that is such a good idea. Yeah, I know. You always run into like the yeah, the British kids who are just done with high school but haven't gone to college yeah, yet. Yeah. Just roaming around the country. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So um, you know, there I was in Pullman in nineteen sixty six and I marched in Pullman's first ever anti-war demonstration, which was the week before Thanksgiving. And, you know, we were outnumbered by the people appalled by our behavior. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some students, some TAs, and a couple professors. <laughs> yeah. and marching against the Vietnam War in Pullman, it wasn't wow. very popular. Yeah. Down the main and, street um, there? Uh, a week later, when I got home, you know, to Richland for the Thanksgiving vacation uh-huh. on the Greyhound bus, and literally the very first words my stepfather said to me were, "You haven't been marching in any of those anti-war demonstrations, have you?" Oh, yeah. Well, at least at least your face wasn't plastered on the paper then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'd already, uh, you know, we were headed for loggerheads already because. Uh, uh, again, those those were the wonderful days when you're uh, if you turned 18 while you were still in high school, your high school counselors, your good buddies, the counselors, uh, t- turned your name over to the yeah. uh, selective service, you know, the local selective service board. So were there? Huh, so I'd had to register for the draft, you know, before I left high school, and so wow. I requested conscientious objector uh, forms. Yeah. Uh, that in the meantime went off to school, and unbeknownst to me, uh, they had arrived, and I'd requested, I'd actually very specifically requested that they be sent to me in Pullman, mm-hmm. and they did, and they sent them to my parents' homes, and my, my uh, stepdad opened sure. them and tossed them out, and <clears throat> didn't wow. want to hear anything about that. Wow. So were there repercussions for burning your draft card? Uh, no, because it's, you know, I didn't call them up and tell them or anything like that. That uh-huh. was just the start of my basically ignoring the assholes. Yeah. <clears throat> huh. 
And I may have written the draft board a few letters in, in here and there over the course of you know the next few months. Yeah. Uh, I fell in, you know, with you know somebody three or four years older just seemed so much older and more mature, but not your parents. Yeah. You know how that works too. Of so. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the burgeoning um, anti-war movement in, in Pullman. And like I said, I wasn't re really ready for school, so I was basically flunking out. Mm -hmm. uh, the end of the first semester, I'd met, there was a second-year student from California, and his name was Eric Nelson. Um, and uh, we'll back up a bunch. I was 12 when I first decided to take LSD. Okay. Oh, wow. In 1959. That was probably, that was its first year out? Uh, oh, no, yeah. no. It had, you know, been out since the early 50s. But, you know, I read an article about it in U.S. News and World Report, of all, all things. Uh -huh. And um, it's used in uh, psychiatric hospitals. And there was just enough to, wow, this sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't have to... I want to, I'd like to take some of this one of these days. And then, you know, I, every once in a while over the next six years, you know, I'd see a little mention of it here or there starting to, to get a little press. And, they, oh, yeah, so Eric said he'd bring some back, you know, over winter break. Perfect. You know, so the first week of school in January and a nice snowy day in, in Pullman, uh -huh. uh, four of us met in his dorm room and, and dropped acid and then just actually kind of wandered off our own separate directions. Really? Yeah. And that I was your first time? Yeah. In January of 66. So, so, so what happened? Describe well, that you first know, experience. I, I, it was a Sunday. I walked up to the uh, student union building because they had a listening room where you could go in and, and, uh, and sign up for music you wanted to listen to and then when your turn in the list came up they put on that LP. <laughs> oh awesome. really? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, how did people do things? Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> uh, and I remember sitting there and I'm reading about the the Vietnam War and I'm finding myself kind of giggling and then thinking Vietnam War is not very funny. No. This <laughs> kind of interesting, you know. I mean, my music comes on, I listen to that, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to get off. So uh, yeah. I wandered off at that point and back up and decided I'd see if I could uh, uh, find my friends. Yeah. And um, one of them had um, a crush on some sorority girl, so we wandered off to that sorority to go talk to them and <laughs> standing out in the snow on the what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> but yeah, good old Bill, who then later in the course of the evening wandered off to uh, he was also friends with the student body president, so he went to tell the student body president what we'd done. Well got in trouble. <laughs> oh god. Good one, Bill. Yeah. Yeah, but that was the that was the start of you know my decline in, in college. So you lasted. Uh, the last I about half of the next that semester. Mm -hmm. Over spring break, I came to Seattle for the first Bob Dylan concert in Seattle, and also a huge anti-war rally that started at Garfield and made its way to the Seattle Center, and it was thousands and thousands of people. Mm -hmm. You know, on the night before had been the um, 
Bob Dylan concert, or maybe it was that night and the, the rally earlier in the day. Mm-hmm. And if Eric and I had hitchhiked over for that. <clears throat> and that was my introduction to the university district. Wow, that's really cool. You know, compared to the Tri Cities. Exactly. And, yeah. And, Even uh, to <laughs> yeah. Um, so I decided I wanted to come back. And then later that stay I took some L S D. I was at a friend's house, Bill, in fact, who had mm-hmm. gotten us all in trouble. His parents were both doctors. Um uh, lived on Mercer Island and we were supposed to have dinner there and go to a movie that night in the U District. His dad was going to drive us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'd gone ahead and dropped acid. And, uh, <clears throat> Taking the so I didn't come in for dinner. and Probably a good uh, idea. Yeah, probably a good idea. <laughs> I walked across the floating bridge and back and I was really, really high and got back in time for his dad and, and Bill and our friend Dana come out and we all got in the car and I don't recall how Bill explained my presence but yeah. at that moment you know the Beethoven Violin Concerto came on the radio and I saw the pure black light uh oh <laughs> <laughs> you know I always hear about the pure white light but I saw the pure black light uh-huh. and the next thing I know is dad shaking me and wanting to know what's going on and they drive me to the university hospital and shoot me full of Thorazin what? What is that? What is that? Oh, Thorazin is um, an anti-dopamine agent, and basically, what it does is, it, I don't, in those days, they, they thought this was a way to, to treat an LSD trip or something. It just immediately brings it to a halt. Mm-hmm. What did uh, it do? Kind of, it's just kind of really jangly, Ugh. you know. And then my parents are called in. My my. Stepfather drives over from the Tri Cities the next day to bring me home in disgrace. Yeah, yeah. and uh, dragged by a collar. Yeah, but you know I'm almost 19 by that point. You know, and, and pulls me out of school, and so on Easter Sunday in 1966, I said, yeah, "Screw it, you know, I'm leaving home." out the door. <clears throat> where do you go? Hitchhiked back to Pullman because that's where all my friends were. Yeah. Hung out there till the end of, uh, you know, so LSD was my gateway drug to <laughs> marijuana. <laughs> started smoking pot. And yeah. Years later, I could tell people I lived in Pullman's only slum and they'd say, oh yeah, the Cliff House. Oh yeah? Is that... I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know if it's still there now. That would be kind of amazing. But it was... I wish we had a <laughs> Washington State. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough. Yeah. To, to ask. No. no. So, 
So then what? You hang out in Pullman for a while. Yeah, until, you know, like early June. Yeah. And then just this whole group of us basically, we all dropped out of school. Oh, man. Uh, uh, there was my friend Ralph who was had gone to high school with me, but I didn't know him in high school. He was a year ahead of me. Uh, and uh, several other people, and we just all moved to Seattle, and most of them were from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I spent, I lived downtown uh, just on Boren Street, you know, right below Pill Hill over there okay, for yeah. uh, uh, most of the that summer. And then it, Boeing was a really booming man, just, you know. Yeah. If you could stand on two feet, they would hire you. And so after a couple months, I got a job at Boeing on the swing shift. Nice. And, um, did that, did that satisfy your, your life's Yeah. Uh, no, I, I lasted about three months. Yeah. On weekends, I tended to um, uh, go to the district and get LSD and, yeah. and, and meet people and hang out. Yeah. And at, finally, at one point, about three months in, my manager told me uh, to either get a haircut or, or be fired. So I said, I quit. Yeah, which I think took him really by surprise. <laughs> he didn't know who he was dealing with. Yeah. So <laughs> I continued to let my hair grow and and uh, was no longer employed. But yeah. you know, I'd saved up some money and it was there was a lot of slack in the system in the sixties. You could get by on very little money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always amazed thinking back on just how you could get by without like right. what what. What kind of uh, slack, I guess? Well, you know, for rent, places to stay, for yeah. just, you know, handouts. Uh, though this is pre food stamps, mm-hmm. it's still, uh, it's just, there was an amazing amount of slack. So, you know, I moved to your district and became a hippie full time. Yeah. And began meeting a lot. Some people who are still, I mean, still in touch with and, you know, lifelong friends. Wow. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, and then just, you know, ignored the draft. Yeah. Just didn't pay any attention to it at all. Yeah. And they never... Well, no. Uh, <clears throat> I finally... This was sometime in 67 or early 68. I'm a little fuzzy there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got word that the FBI was looking for me. <laughs> Oh, you got you know, what's, what's the... It's amazing they couldn't find you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, to digress a bit, a lawyer told me a couple of years later in regards to that, oh, they say they spend a lot of effort looking for you, but what they do is they have this list of names and sometimes photographs, and once a month they drive around town for a couple of hours <laughs> yeah. and see what they can see. Yeah. This was in San Francisco, yeah. There's a lot of slack in the system. Yeah, there's a lot of slack in the system. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it turned out I had been uh, inducted. Um, when I first came to Seattle, I'll back up a bit, uh, in that summer of 66, because I was no longer in college, I had to take uh, a pre-induction physical, mm-hmm. um, which was down near uh, what's now Soto. There was a Coast Guard facility down there, and that's where they had the um, uh, facilities for... Um, 
the induction physicals and pre-induction physicals and all that. Mm -hmm. So I walked in just this skinny kid with glasses. I think I weighed about 115 pounds. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> one thing I didn't want to do was have a blood sample drawn. You know, at the time I had a terrible uh, fear of needles. Uh -huh. But being a hippie got over that too. <laughs> you know, so do I have to? You have to. You know, this is you know I can't be. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Wh when are you gonna do it? We're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't felt a thing. hadn't noticed a thing. <laughs> oh. And all these other guys are going. <laughs> yeah. Because. <laughs> um, and the thing I remember most about that is then you have to take this really simple shit test. You know, to see if you can breathe. Yeah. You know, with like a hundred questions on it, you know, multiple choice. And I took it like I've taken every test in my life, uh, which may or may not be a good strategy, but I'm just skipping around. Oh, yeah. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm getting this guy standing, you have to do them in order. <laughs> Why? And well, that's... You have to. <laughs> that's the actual yeah. test. Yeah. The, it must be the actual test. Yeah. They don't care about the I mean, I, I, I think I got a hundred on this stupid thing, but they were really upset with me for now. <laughs> well, I, I would have that same question if I was recruiting people into the army. Just follow, follow the order of things yeah. here. <sighs> so, you know, and then I, you know, like I said, that, that was, and then I, I went away and didn't pay any attention to them. And a year later or so, find out that they're they're looking for me. Yeah. The FBI, because apparently I've missed, I, I've missed an induction. I've been drafted. Uh, in fact, a couple of times. <clears throat> so I actually went down to the FBI headquarters downtown in the old, which at the time was in the old federal building. Yeah. Um, and talked to somebody. And he said, oh, yeah, just, you know, get in touch with them, tell them it's all a big mistake, you know, and they'll so I got drafted a third time, and, and by this time, I'm thinking, you know, boy, I really don't want to be drafted. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I'm talking to friends, you know, and I tell them you're a junkie, you know, tell them you're homosexual, do this, do that. Yeah. That's um, <clears throat> a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially being a junkie. Yeah. <laughs> so the long and the short of it is by uh, the end of 67, sometime early in 68, um, I got drafted again, you know. I'd gone down and talked to this um, psychiatrist in the med dent building, um, you know, to tell him I was a homosexual, but I don't think he believed me. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and uh, giving that next draft notice, my third or fourth, I figured, um, yeah, I'm, might as well leave town. You know, it's, it's all my best friends had all discovered New Mexico and, and you know, and over a course of about six months had moved down to New Mexico and mm -hmm. sent letters back and, oh, it's really cool, you should come down here. So um, early August, late July of 68, uh, uh, my friend Dick, and uh, my friend James, who was my best friend from high school, he was two years behind me, and he'd come to school at the UW and lasted about two months, and I turned him on to some acid and dropped out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So the three of us um, headed off for uh, New Mexico in Dick's Dotson Station wagon. Nice. And Dick was an interesting 
interesting, a sad case ultimately. You don't yeah. mind if I just sort of no, yeah, wander in total free form. Yeah, I met Dick probably my first week um, at school in Pullman. He was in my dorm, and he was from Seattle. <clears throat> and uh, he was the only child of a divorced mother, and if she's still alive, she still hates me to this very day because she blames me for everything bad that ever happened to Dick. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> But um, we headed on down to New Mexico, and I'll get back to Dick more later on because you know he was part of we all arrived in New Mexico. Sure, sure. And um, <clears throat> so, basically, over the course of two days, we drove from sea level in Seattle to six thousand feet in the end of the paved road to uh, Vallecitos, New Mexico, where summer population of about eighty. Yeah and a winter population of about 30, counting us. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Vicedo's about 70 miles one way from Santa Fe and 70 miles the other way from Taos. Okay. So this is just where your friends decided to yeah. migrate to. Um, and uh, the... God damn, blanking on the... Oh, yeah, the nearest town, and it was the farming agricultural community, was Espanola. Mm -hmm. And then a couple friends had settled uh, a long way around if you drove the paved road, but only about 12 miles if you took the bumpy, you know, yeah. dirt back road. Uh, El Rito, uh, where our other friends uh, lived, Stan and his wife... Stan, who was somewhat older than the rest of us and actually had a PhD in physics, uh, and was the first one of us to, to move down there. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Stan ended up getting a job at Los Alamos and then all paranoid about all his acquaintances. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that part too. But, um, <laughs> because that was pretty funny. I'll be getting to that. Ah, yeah. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> Let me know if you need a So anyway, we arrived, you know, from sea level to 6,000 feet over the course of two days. Mm -hmm. uh, oh boy, more people are here, you know, big celebrate, drink a lot of uh, smoked dope and drink a lot of, uh, of uh, cheap fortified wine. Mm -hmm. Terrible hangover the next day. Uh, uh, just, oh, just shit. terrible. Um, <laughs> But I was also the only one who didn't get the runt because Dick and James promptly got the runs and everybody else who, had, you know, the first week they arrived there got the, got the run dysentery. Huh, from water. Uh, and, you know, so they, you know, they're passing out bottles of KO to, you know, to plug you up. And I'm, that looked, the cure looked worse than the disease. So I just decided basically that I wouldn't get the disease and I never did. I was the only person that oh, never man. got dysentery. Nice. How, what, what did it come from? Uh, basically the change in the uh, gut flora, you know, the stuff you're eating, the water. Yeah. Huh. Um, you know, and, and it would last, it'd be just pure misery for three or four days and then they'd get over it and yeah. everything would be fine. <laughs> This so there we were, you know, and we rented a house, you know. Um, well, I don't think Biocedars actually had blocks. <laughs> um, Between these two cactuses. Yeah. yeah. And uh, well, there weren't cactuses there. 
No. You know, not in that area of uh, New Mexico at any rate. Uh, up into the mountains. Okay. Um, so settle, settled in. Uh, high deserts. You know, it's just, I remember our first trip into um, into Española. Uh, there was the stop and eat. And I mean, this was a hand painted huge sign that said "stop and eat." It was a drive. Mm -hmm. mm, chili burger, red yeah, or me. green? What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I think I probably ordered a red chili burger, expecting you know. The hamburger with canned chili poured yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, sure. I got a hamburger with a big fat red chili on it. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I'm not in Seattle anymore. Yeah. Well, but enjoy. Um, the one thing thinking back on, on, on things like this is that I'm amazed. I don't know how old you guys are, but you'll run into this eventually. No, there's how much stuff seemed to have been crammed into what was actually really a really short period of time. Uh-huh. I'm amazed at how much you can remember, because I have trouble yeah. remembering... I'm astonished. So... A year ago. Um, there we are, hanging out in uh, New Mexico in the mountains, and we're meeting up. We met up with um, some people who were involved with... Um, a guy by the name, uh, a Mexican-American by the name of, of a, a U.S. citizen, uh, Tia Arena, who was leading a, basically, there was a, a armed land revolution going on at the time. Uh, the local county cop was nicknamed Tear Gas Martinez, who did not drive the roads in our part of, of the county at night because somebody would probably just kill him because mm -hmm. he's a total asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and um, um, this guy named Gil who ran the local Conoco station um, and was part of the T Arena group, uh -huh. you know, and they'd come out and smoke dope with us and chill <laughs> and chill and stuff. And everybody you might hear a car at night and he'd send... Um, uh, Tiny, who was about 300 pounds out, you know, to take a look, see what's going on. <laughs> it's good to have the gas station over so, there. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this is the gas station in Española, which was the nearest gas, and that was 20-some miles away. Uh, yeah, there's a lot crammed into that period. Do, you, do your what? parents know where you're at at this point? Oh, no, no. So they're I, I you know when I, I left I just you know you're not right because uh, they were going to turn me into the FBI in fact they did turn me into the FBI um, so okay so no. I'm real good at things like that just oh, yeah, screw it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I um, get better at that. Um, one of the things Dick really wanted to do while while he was in New Mexico is he had this hunting fantasy so. <clears throat> We arrived with a number of rifles of Dick's in his 357 Magnum, and he wanted to get an, an elk. And I remember one day going out to the three of us, James, Dick, and myself, to um, find an elk. And we never did, but this involved, among other things, you know, in Dick's little Dotson station wagon, backing down a, a road about six miles before we could get to a point to turn around. And so that weekend, though, Dick got his elk. He went out by himself the next night. Uh, 
in the meantime, we're we're all there gathered at the one house, uh, drinking and smoking dope, and this group of long-haired hippie bank robbers had shown up, <laughs> and uh, they were uh, actual bank robbers. It, so they claimed, and they probably were. So they were on the lam hiding out in New Mexico. Sounds like so it's just past that. dark when Dick pulls up in a big hurry and says, I got one, but it's really big. I need help, you know, skinning it. And, and two of these guys leap up and said, oh, we've done lots of that, you know. And so we yeah. pile in the car, and we're driving up this road in, in, the, in the dark, yeah, and I remember one point it was just really great in the headlights. This owl all of a sudden appears, just oh. coming across the hood and up Ooh. over the windshield. And the thing was huge, and, and we get up to where Dick's, you know, uh, pulled over, and uh, so there are about seven or eight of us. And these guys knew what they were doing. Man, they hoisted that thing up and started cutting it apart. Wow. And we had a bonfire going. I mean, there must have been a thousand pounds of me on, on that thing. <laughs> and how many of you? Uh, there were seven or eight of us. I mean, we were... Somebody's getting a fire going. Yeah, no, we, you know, we all had some raw just to try it, and then we were cooking it over the fire. Yeah. And then we were all, you know, so, you know, three or four hours later, and it's all back down in town, and divvied out and, mm -hmm. and stuff. And for about two weeks, we just, we ate elk. Morning, noon, and night, <laughs> and it's pretty tasty. Yeah, oh, real tasty. <laughs> I don't think I'm. And about two weeks into it, one day, we'd heard that um, the plan was the next day to go up to Taos because there's somebody up there had peyote, and Natural. James and I overslept. Uh huh. Everybody left without us, so. James and I are saying, we're kind of pissed. Yeah. <laughs> and about six that evening, a car pulls up and, and to a, you know, slams to a halt. Guy jumps out and says, all your friends got busted up in Taos. I thought you'd want to know. <laughs> what? <laughs> so we're going, oh, well, this is, you know. <laughs> that was fortunate. <laughs> so later that evening, two of them come straggling in. Uh-huh. And we make a phone call to Gil to his Conoco station in Española. And later that night, basically part of the Tiarina Underground picks them up and drives them out of state. Nice. So, it's just from, you know, in meantime all the women that had been down there with us for one reason or another had left. So it's just all guys anyway. So it's down to the whole... It's me and James were the only ones left. And... In the town of 20 now. Yeah, well, it's summer, so there's still... You know, yeah. Um, and this is sometime in September, I think. Okay. Uh, like I said, a lot got crammed into... Yeah. It's September, thereabouts. And so, all of a sudden, we're the only ones. So... <clears throat> one day we're uh, up at their house because it was better appointed than our house and decided to uh, well let's go to the post office and we'll take the shortcut and across the creek and the Viacitos 
river, which was, you know, you could walk across. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and up the back to our place. And I looked up, I saw some guys in uniforms, and I said, yeah, let's go around the other way. James said, ah, yeah, it, they're just going to ask us about tubs and drinking you know, everybody, and we don't know anything, you know? Nah, turns <laughs> out they were game agents. Oh. And the whole thing is Dick, along with the hide, really wanted to stuff the head, but, you know, he didn't know anything about this crap. And yeah. He had been telling him, get rid of the thing, get rid of it. Yeah. So he tells us he got rid of it. Well, all he got rid of was he tossed it over the fence into some bushes in an unused piece of property where the neighbor's dog dragged it out. We got snitched off for the reward, of course. (laughs) And we had a refrigerator full of milk. (laughs) We found it. We hit it with the car. So we're sitting there, and they... um, Want to go inside the house and search, and you know, you know, and they keep leading us, you know, James aside, and then you know, me, so they question us separately and uh-huh. everything. No, we've got to both be together, so they go get James and bring him back. Yeah. But finally, they did wear, wear us down, and they went in and found a refrigerator full of elk meat. We got arrested for illegal possession of elk meat. Wow. I, I remember the game agent too, you know, one Nando Malden, you know, from Oklahoma. Wow. What? Because wow. then he went by the other house to search that. And hippies in those days were very patriotic. So uh, Alan's bedroom was, had this huge American flag on, you know, on the wall. Man, did you ever think, see anything as pretty as that flag? Now goes go. And we're standing out in the yard playing darts on the dartboard and waiting. So we get hauled off to Espanol and to jail. They put you in jail? Oh, yeah. For, well. uh, we, we saw the judge. I can't remember the judge's name. But uh, the judge held court in his garage. And the story always on this there judge this. was uh, that wolf. he and his wife were actually both on, on parole for murder because, you know, he'd been having an affair. The judge. the judge? Yeah, the judge. I mean, it's New Mexico in 66 is pretty... Yeah. Uh, still. So, you know, he looks at it. It's $50 or 50 days. And off to jail we go. Really? <laughs> yeah, so there we are in the... Um, and I grabbed two books to take with me because you, you always want to have something to read in jail. Uh, and there we were in jail. And uh, over across the way in, in El Rito, they'd also arrested Stan and his wife uh, for because um, uh, they had a bunch of elk meat too. Uh, I think it's gone, get the gringos. But, uh, so there we are, and, and Donna's all night going, Stan, do something. <laughs> and the rest of us just got to laugh. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot we can do yeah. here, you know, tonight at least, you know, Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, come on. <laughs> but uh, the first thing I did in jail, because the, the two, I had a science fiction book with me and the current Guinness Book of World Records. So the very first thing I did was look up the world's longest jail sentence. <laughs> yeah. You know, to console myself. Yeah, feel a little better. Yeah. Oh and I ended God. up doing... James got bailed out after about four days, uh, and then I got bailed out 
after six days. All right. And uh, well, it wasn't even really bail because you know basically the fifty dollars to pay are fine. Yeah. Uh, so you know, back to Vicedos and our houses, and we're still the only ones there uh, for a few days because all the others have you know. Everybody, you know, who got busted for the peyote split, except for Dick. They had one hapless deputy out there guarding them, and there's a field and a fence and the wide open spaces, and, and apparently this, this deputy was really asleep at the wheel, and they all looked at one another and said, and all bolted and over the fence and away they went cross country, except for Dick, who then spent the next three months in the uh, Santa Fe Penitentiary <laughs> before his mother got him out. Another strike against David and Jane. <laughs> so all you had to do was run with him, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. when, when we did get back from jail, we discovered that all the guns that had all been up in the one house had been stolen. Um, uh, and then we'd been there by ourselves for about uh, maybe a week, another week, and our friend Rufus from Seattle pulls up in his big Dodge Power Wave. <laughs> of course he does. With uh, probably, and I'm not exaggerating, in those days, you know, fifty to eighty thousand dollars worth of stolen Persian rugs. <coughs> wow. Uh, stolen from a house on Lake Washington somewhere. We had wow. Persian rugs all over the place. One, one friend in, in uh, Santa Fe was just using them as a door hanging. Use them as a towel, as a napkin. Yeah. So, um, at some point in that, I decided I need to get some money so I'd have to go to the coast and do something. Uh, so I, you know, the, the first step in something like this was always, you know, get a ride into Espanola, hang out at Gill's Conoco Station for a bit, and then start hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, I ended up hitchhiking to Los Angeles, where a friend was going uh, to school at UCLA. He was going to the film school. Uh, actually... Yeah, he started out in US, USC and switched to UCLA, or vice versa. But anyway, um, I spent a day or so there and then on up the coast to San Francisco where I hung out with some old friends there mm -hmm. for a few days and realized I wasn't going to make any money. Back down to Los Angeles and uh, where I spent all of November or most of November and a little bit of December uh, at UCLA. You know, his, he lived in an apartment at the tail end of Greek Row, right across the street from the UCLA campus. Mm -hmm. oh. And I, I remember at one time walking back from, and this was Westwood Village too, so it's like, I, at the time, um, uh, the premiere of um, the Beatles' Yellow Submarine, and we just naively <laughs> thought, well, 
let's walk down and get tickets and watch. Of course, there's the spotlights. And, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, can't get within a block of the theater. No, no. Well, so much for that. But anyway, I'm hanging out with Christopher and his roommates. And one day I'm walking back uh, past this fraternity house, and there are about, you know, three frat rats hanging out there. And one of them yells out, you know, I had hair down. And I think redheads are ugly. And I looked back and yelled out, I think all Greeks are faggots. <laughs> and they just jumped up out of their chairs and started off the porch. You know, I was just, just going to get myself stumped. Yeah, yeah. But I just leaned over, and, you know, there's empty liquor bottles all over the place. And I just leaned over and picked up one and just stood there and looked at him. They went back. Next day, I walked by the same guys, and they're waving. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> Just, I would have had to run like. Yeah, you know. there you go. Yeah, they weren't gonna touch it. <laughs> but uh, it's all the attitude. <laughs> Finally, I um, decided it was time to go back to New Mexico. So this is like a week or so before Christmas, mm -hmm. and I start hitchhiking from. Los Angeles. Was it, how long would you stand out for a ride? Was it, would you get, get one pretty quickly? Oh, I, I would stand for, I've stood overnight. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Um, and I ended up getting a ride at, right outside of Bakersfield from this young African-American woman in a Mustang. Um, and we got caught in a blizzard going across um, Arizona. And she had car problems, so... Um, we had to spend, God, I'm trying to blank on the name of the place in Arizona, and I should be able to remember. It's right on 66. Mm -hmm. It'll come to me sooner or later. Like, we had to spend a day or two there. And eventually she let me off in Santa Fe because she was going back home for Christmas, you know, relatives and, mm -hmm. yeah. and stuff. And from Santa Fe, I made it up to Espanola. And, you know, it's like 10 degrees out or something, and, and a little bit of snow on the ground, and to Gil's Conoco Station, and hang out there the there afternoon. And then Back with the boys. Gil gives me a ride that evening to El Rito, uh, where I stay at Stan and Donna's. And uh, those Stan's, you know, about to be hired at Los Alamos, cause, so he's a little paranoid about <laughs> Yeah. And I get up in the morning, and I'm going to make my way to Viacitos. And who should pull up in his official state, you know, fish and game agency car, but one Nando Malden, who arrested me several months earlier. Why, well, hi, David. What are you doing here? Well, I'm, you know, going... Let's take the back road. That'll be more fun. So, uh, and he gives me a ride to, to Viacitos over the, you know, there's only about a foot or so of snow on the ground, but even in the best of times, that was a, yeah. a kind of a problematic connection. But yeah. we made it, and he just had a high old time. <laughs> Stories of enemies turned into friends. And uh, so I was back in time for Christmas, but <clears throat> the whole thing fell apart by the end of January, because um, some new people had arrived from Seattle, everybody else had arrived back by then. Um, but 
all skies decided it would be a really great idea to. Um, yeah, I'm still dodging the draft, of mm -hmm. course. Um, go to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, where it's not cold. Yeah. <laughs> so we closed up the uh, the one house, and a couple people were staying in in our house still. Where only a few weeks earlier we had watched the third ever Super Bowl because we have a, a TV for some reason. That was the one in which you know Joe Namath guaranteed the Jets would would win the Super Bowl, and they did. And they did. Uh, in a, you know a couple of weeks after that's back when they actually held the Super Bowl in January, like mid January. Yeah. So we're going to leave for New Orleans. So. <clears throat> We left sort of separate in groups, and James and I got a ride from neighbors in the back of their pickup. God, I'm trying to remember if that was a ride just into Espanola or all the way to, now it's just into Espanola. During the winter. Uh, yeah. Oh, God. It was, uh, it took me five minutes to unbutton my jeans to take a piss. <laughs> it was so yeah, cold. Yeah. But, you know, we all made our way to the freight yards in Albuquerque. And James was the only one who didn't have an actual backpack. He had a suitcase. Uh -huh. And he lagged behind. And since he was basically my partner, I stuck with James. And everybody else got on a different train. And, and we caught one that... Um, No food, no water. But I did have a copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, You've always got to have something. It's, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> it's your stuff. That'll sustain you for yeah. a little while. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> how do you know where these trains are headed? Did well, you, you ask people. And yeah. They're eastbound, you know. So the. the, the People working with the, the freight? Are you yeah. hopping on? Uh, usually you just yeah. go up and get on a car. On a, We'll have more on freight trains here in a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm imagine my seat here. So, Jane, this train we're on keeps starting and stopping, starting and stopping. And, I mean, for hours at a time it'll be stopped. And we're just sitting there wondering, what the fuck? Yeah. We finally, the middle of the night get rousted in uh, San Antonio where they don't take kindly to mm -hmm. long hairs even though I had all my hair tucked up in the stocking cap and James the same we got kicked out of the freight yards and don't show your faces here yeah. and uh, <clears throat> didn't even get to see the album on <laughs> so about five in the morning we find ourselves out you know, on the on-ramp to the, to the freeway, Interstate 10, I believe it was. And we flipped coins to see who would go hitchhike first, figuring we'd best split up. Hmm. And I actually won the coin toss, but I told James, you go ahead. And, oh, God, it could have been 15 minutes later. Um, I see him climbing in the back of this car. 
and off he goes. Mm -hmm. I didn't see James for over a year after that. It took me the better part of the day to get a ride. And I got a really interesting ride all the way to Houston because we got off Tim and he wanted to take the back roads. Mm -hmm. And so we're going through all these small Texas towns and everyone that had a church, and they all had churches, he wanted me to call out the, the street names, the cross streets on all these tall steeple, you know, classic small town Texas churches. He was doing a study or something. I wanted you to call him out. So, you know, among the other things in, in that ride that I remember seeing, there was an Air Force base nearby, uh, and part of the way, and an early one, uh, one of the uh, variable wing planes doing touch and go landings and going through the whole, you know, wings yeah. out, in, out, and, and we're just driving along and this thing's coming in and out. Mm. And I'm going, wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So he takes me to Houston and uh, gives me a whole ring road ride around Houston, you know, so I see the Superdome there and everything, yeah. which had just been built, <clears throat> and then drops me off in the middle of fucking nowhere where the on-ramp to Interstate 10 isn't yet built. Uh, it's basically, it's, it's a gravel and, and seashell, you know, on-ramp, you know, in the middle of the swamp. But it's honky-tonk, there's this tavern there. Uh-huh. And I go wandering into this tavern, you know, with my backpack on, glasses, but my hair you know, up in a stocking cap and have a beer and uh, barmaids telling me I look like an alien. <laughs> <laughs> so I have my beer and I figure, you know, crap, I'm going to just crawl into the bushes here tonight. Have you slept? Since uh, you on the road two days? Well, off and on in the, yeah, in the freight train. Oh, okay. You know? And then this has been a long day. It's probably about nine at night in okay. February. And so you think in the bushes. Here, here are these bushes. I'll just, you know, walk into the bushes a ways and haul out my sleeping bag and sack out for the mm-hmm. night. Evans had the same thought. Funny. Yeah. Dog starts barking. Uh. And I hear a screen door open and some guy yelling at the dog to, to sh- yeah. <laughs> Shut up. You know, dog shuts up for a while. Dog starts barking again. So I go about. Yeah. Screen door opens again and, bang! This guy's just shooting. He was probably a twenty-two or something no. off into the bushes in the dark. Oh, <laughs> and I'm That's yelling, not what you need. Cut the fuck out! And I'm stuffing my sleeping bag in my pack and I'm hightailing it back out to the road. And so I found another spot near a drainage ditch. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. um, No gunfire. Next morning, I did get a ride all the way to New Orleans. Uh, So what happened to James? Yeah. Well... Well, we'll come... It took me a year year to find this out, but we'll back up. James got into a car with two young men and a young woman who had been robbing convenience stores. Across Texas. There's a lot of slack in the system. And they were drinking, and James was in the back seat, 
And at 80 miles an hour, they plowed into a concrete siding in Baton Rouge, and everybody in the car was killed except for James, wow. who did lose his two front teeth and was arrested and tossed in jail and then discovered that he was a criminal draft dodger, not unlike myself. So then the FBI came and took him away and Is that back he up was, to Seattle. He was yeah. arrested for... Draft dodging. Okay. You know, well. being at the scene of an accident. <laughs> but I didn't find this stuff out for over a year. <laughs> um, so the guy who picked me up in Houston and was going all the way to New Orleans um, with one stop just over the Texas border from New Orleans. He said, wait here, and if you still haven't gotten a ride by the time I'm uh, done with my business, I'll pick you back up, which yeah. he ended up doing, take you all the way to New Orleans. Yeah. And it turned out he was an off-duty New Orleans sheriff that he had to put in a certain amount of time each year to keep his standing in the department. So he was going to serve during Mardi Gras, because it's time to put on yeah. So we're driving along and trading and blah blah blah, and it's you know some. Why don't you take off your hat? No, I don't think so. And it's just so. Finally, I said, I got longer hair than you've ever seen on a guy, and it's just gonna piss you off. <laughs> and you know he's okay. Well, by the time we got to New Orleans, though, he starts hitting on me. Huh. Uh oh. Wanted to know if I'd consider, you know, getting a motel room. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I, I said no. <laughs> yeah. But he dropped me off right on Bourbon Street. There you go. Uh, so there I am with my pack on in a big, heavy, you know, uh, wool pea coat, you know, coming from the mountains of New Mexico in 10 degree weather. What's that? How do you find everyone? Uh, well, I'm getting to that. <laughs> And I've got, you know, like about a dollar in my pocket. And I hadn't walked a block down Bourbon Street, and I heard somebody yell, There's one of ours! And somebody snatched my hat out, all my hair came cascading out, and there's the rest of the group. There's the crew! They've been there for a couple of days. And um, so we immediately <laughs> retired to like um, where, you know, our main hangout for the next... Because this was like... 10 days before actual Mardi Gras day, but I mean, the celebration starts. Mm -hmm. You know, it being one of these lunar calendar things, it varies, but everybody starts really partying hard at least a week or two beforehand. So in our, our main place, the two main places we hung out at were uh, the Seven Seas and Napoleon's, which was right around the corner. And that street paralleled the, uh, the um, levee. And it's the Mississippi River over the yeah. levee. <clears throat> so there we are hanging out in the Seven Seas, uh, which was great. They, they had a courtyard out in the back with ping pong tables, so we played a lot of ping pong. And they had um, bleachers inside where you could sit, and they were open 24 hours a day. Wow. But you weren't supposed to sleep in there. <laughs> I remember one sitting there in the bleacher, and and whoever was bartending, says, yeah, it's okay, I don't care if anybody's asleep. So one guy spends about 10 minutes 
trying to wake up his friend to tell him it's okay he can sleep. Oh, God. <laughs> it's just class. <laughs> yeah. I remember walking out of uh, the Seven Seas one night, and there's this guy. Um, he's got on a bunch of, you know, beads and stuff and a headdress and not a whole lot else and a big, giant wooden phallus, you know, painted gold. <laughs> I'm Goldfinger. Who the fuck are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Buy you a drink. <laughs> and it turns out he was an actor, you know, living in uh, New Orleans. And I mean, it was just, I, it was an amazing scene. Yeah. We, um, where were you staying? We found places to stay. There was uh, this uh, woman that Mike had met who had a place around the corner. And then there was this semi abandoned building across the street from the Seven Seas that you could go upstairs and crash on the second floor. Nice. And uh, early on, we hadn't been there three or four days, and Drone and Randy managed to get busted for pot. So that was kind of interesting in its own right. We um, um, trucked downtown to... Uh, the local ACL, ACLU to see what we could do. They were mostly envious that we were from Seattle, which you guys have a really good ACLU up there. <laughs> but there wasn't a whole lot we could do for yeah. Randy and, and Drone. They were going to be stuck in jail for a while. And that, this was 1969, and there couldn't have been, I mean, you know, we're talking New Orleans and still, you know, tens of thousands of people in the street every night. There might have been four or five dozen hippies or long hairs hanging out there, including us. We were the only ones there drinking. And as a consequence, we were the only ones who really didn't get hassled by the cops. I remember walking around. Uh, oh, let's go over and see what's going on in Napoleon's, because they'd have music at Napoleon's. And get stopped by a cop. You know, and he's, what's your name? You know, blah, blah. And I was, where are you here for? Mardi Gras, sir. And what you doing for Mardi Gras? Getting drunk on my butt, sir. All right, as long as you don't fool around with any of that marijuana stuff, you can go. Yeah. And we were pretty much there to uh, drink. Yeah. <laughs> Our friend Mike, whose idea it was, had been going every Mardi Gras since he was about 14 or 15. Yeah, hitchhiking down, riding the rails, and you know, this was about his you know, fourth or fifth, fifth or sixth Mardi Gras that he'd been to over the years. <clears throat> wow. And he was, you know, six foot two and just a total ladies man, and just a, a total magnet for him. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, Mardi Gras night rolls around. In the meantime, uh, amongst other people we've met, we George from Georgia, you know, our bosom buddy, and um, that wasn't Randy, though, that um, Drone got busted with this. You know, back up. Uh, the people we met were a couple of guys who were a little older, uh, Grant, and I'm trying to remember the other guy's name, and 
one guy was working as doorman at the Red Garter Saloon, and the other guy was in the banjo band. Now, the Red Garter Saloon, especially in those days, was the famous, you know, Mardi Gras. Right. You know, See. Yeah. And it's like, we're talking in those days, $10 pitchers of beer, and... Uh, <clears throat> And nothing but people in, in business suits there. Wow. Well, I spent a good chunk of Mardi Gras night, having already lost my glasses, uh, so I'm blind as a bat. <laughs> but I spent a good chunk of the night sitting at the bar in the Red Garter, where I was, A, allowed in for free, and B, every time I turned around, there was a fresh pitcher of beer on the house in front of me from, you know, one of the bartenders. <laughs> so Somewhere around two in the morning, I wanted to get out. Better go find uh, yeah everyone else. <laughs> you know, and the next day we all make our plans to leave and go back to. We decided we'd skip New Mexico because it's still winter. Let's go to the coast. Uh -huh. So um, um, we got rides out to the uh, the freight yards in, in New Orleans. Are in middle of a swamp and even in February you got mosquitoes like this wow. and and they do not take kindly to people riding the rails uh -huh. so you know we're hunkered down in the swamp we would make forays out into the the railroad people weren't bad it's just you know the railroad bulls yeah those uh, guys were were classics so Doing it with a big group is probably there were let's see there were I think six of us at this point and, and anyway white James. white and Randy got onto one train different from the rest of us and um, Tubbs and myself and George from Georgia decided he was going to come out to the coast with us there might have been five of us uh, get on a different train. And it lurches out, and next thing we wake now we wake up in the morning on a siding in Texas, about ninety miles uh, still east of Houston, and the train's long gone. So, and it's getting towards dusk, and we walk to a shopping center, you know, where we can get you know bite to eat, and we're sitting there against the back of the building. And this old black man pulls up in the car and gets out and walks into the store. And after a while, Randy gets up and walks over and comes back and says, keys are in the car. And then goes, George, you guys are crazy. Randy going, by the time a stolen car reports out, we'll ditch the, you know, on the freight yards in Houston, and you know, Tubbs starts pulling on his gloves. I'm sitting there, jeez. <laughs> At that moment, the guy walks out and gets in his car and drives off, you know, <sighs> thus saving us all from the Texas Penitentiary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. or at least a couple of us. Mm -hmm. So then we flipped coins to see who would hitchhike first, you know, up on the, on the freeway up yeah. the embankment, and I lost, which is sad to go first. I had this much of one lens left. So I'm standing there in, in a bit of a drizzle. It's getting towards dusk. <laughs> and, oh, one other thing. When the two guys had separated, uh, got on a different train from us, I had one of the... Uh, their sleeping bags. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, I'm standing there hitchhiking. I get a ride almost immediately. The guy takes me right to the freight yards and drops me off. I walk into the freight yards. I start wandering. It's definitely dark now, and I'm wandering down. And I, I find a shack, and I ask for you know westbound freight. And the guy says, uh, it just pulled out five minutes ago. And then he pokes his head back in the shack and says, no, they're running a little behind. And he says, he says Good that, walk down about 10 cars, and there's an empty. And I couldn't even see. And it, so he comes up and grabs me by the arm and takes me over and says, okay, about five more cars and there's an empty. And I'd walked about three cars and the train gave a lurch and uh, uh, started to move. And there was an empty right in front of me and it wasn't you know, as far down as you'd said. Mm -hmm. And I just said, tossed my pack on and jumped up and I heard somebody say, who's there? And it was the two guys we'd last seen in. in oh my. <laughs> so I had this sleeping bag. Yeah. What so the hell? There was a lot more magic back Oh, there. yeah. yeah. What's the Just total synchronicity. Yeah. And so we ended up... Take away uh, cell phones and get... The world reacts. <laughs> Just about a year ago, I set out on the road, seeking my fame and fortune, looking for a pot of gold. Things got bad and things got worse, I guess you know the tune. up on the siding in my favorite town, San Antonio, again, later on, so we split up, Yeah. and um, I'm standing out there hitchhiking on the edge of town, and this big old honking Cadillac, beat the shit Cadillac, uh, you know, early 60s Cadillac pulls up, you know, with a rear passenger window that, you know, won't roll up, and leaked fumes into the car the entire time and there's these these two black men driving and this other white kid they've picked up hitchhiking along with this guitar mm -hmm. and they're going all the way to Los Angeles nice and um, this kid's going to San Diego um, I remember in the middle of fucking nowhere and I mean nowhere. There's nothing for a zillion miles around. There's a roadblock. And the state patrol is out the Texas, you know, state patrols out there, highway patrol. And uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, I am a draft dodger. This is... Never but, uh, you know, and they're just, it's incredibly racist. They're asking these, well, Curly, you ever fucked a white woman? No, sir. You know? And, you know, questions like that. And then 
<laughs> I had to pipe up. I said, excuse me, why are you doing this? Oh, we just like to do this now and again, you know. Stop cars and ask people questions was basically what uh-huh. they said. Yeah. And on we go. And uh, through New Mexico and into Southern California, into San Diego, uh, where uh, the kid, uh, the other kid was going, who, you know, his girlfriend lived there and his parents, and that's where we dropped him off, and he could uh, provide us some money. And I remember uh, asking a person in a grocery store there, you know, if... He knew some, I don't work here to support, and then he gave me ten dollars though. But anyway, they they took me to Watts, <laughs> and and that's where I got let out in San, in um, in um, Los Angeles, where I then joined up with my friend Christopher again, who, in the meantime, I think switched to he was going to UCLA to USC to go to film school, mm-hmm. and I spent oh a few days there and then continued on up the coast because everybody was going to meet in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where we did, we ended up in Haight-Ashbury. And I stand with friends. Yeah. And you know, back up to New Mexico, you know, for a while. Okay. In New Mexico discovered, one of the things we discovered is uh, rock climbing. Is somebody, I think, <clears throat> an older friend of LP's, and LP was in his like late twenties, early thirties, and another one of these. You know, I think he had a degree in physics too, and was a friend of Stan's. Uh, and a friend of his from New York had come out named Wadsworth, and we discovered rock climbing. We had this copy of Freedom of the Hill, the Mountaineers, Freedom of the Hills, like second or third printing, mm-hmm. and. So we were mail-ordering mail stuff from REI. So we got gold line rope and uh-huh. we got some stuff. And I had these boots that were way too big for me. And one afternoon we trucked down the um, <clears throat> Vallecitos River to this uh, spot in the canyon where there was an outcrop of rock. It was maybe, I don't know, 60, 70 feet high. Mm-hmm. It was probably actually involved technical climbing, but we didn't know any better. And we all tied into the rope at the same time, and we all, except for Dick, who refused to. And so we're all strung out along the rope. I'm about the middle, and it's some kind of Is it too late to turn around? Everybody's just laughing at me, you know. So we we finished the climb and unroped and came back down around the other side. <coughs> and so it's you know it's like 80 degrees out. And the water's about 34 degrees yeah. in this canyon. And then we flipped coins to see who had to go in first. And that's, big, that's a big factor. Oh, yeah. And I, I lost. So I Even jumped, when you win the coin flip. I know. You yeah. always give so. it away. Yeah, Jeff, I, I um, jumped in the water, and you know your balls immediately shrivel up <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah. And I didn't say a word. Reasons. I didn't let out a pee. Nope. Totally everybody else yeah, jumps that's in, you know, that's great. we're all screaming, God, it's fucking So I, that had planted the rock climbing bug in this, uh-huh. So 
Wadsworth had been one of the people who had been busted in the peyote thing and, and had had to leave the state. Yeah. And he didn't come back. He continued on to California, mm-hmm. uh, on, on to Mill Valley. <clears throat> and actually, he continued on there for a while, and then he'd gone on to um, Yosemite. Yosemite, now land of our dreams. Yeah. So we'd been in the hate for maybe about a week when due to some ill-advised consumption of drugs I had a relapse of serum hepatitis and which I'd had in 1967 what kind of hepatitis serum hepatitis I forget which of the A B or C's it is it's it's A or B but it confers an immunity against um, other forms. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we made contact with Wadsworth again by that time, and he was in town for the weekend uh, from Yosemite and realized that I was deathly sick, so he said, I, um, come on, I'm taking you over to Mill Valley to Miles Maryland's to get well where I met uh, two of my dearest friends to this very day. And they're more like, Merrily was, I was 21 at the time. Merrily was probably in her early mid thirties and Miles maybe in his late twenties, early thirties, a few years younger than Merrily. Mm -hmm. And Merrily's son by a previous marriage, you know, Stephen who was uh, like 17 at the time, I think. Um, and I consider them like step-parents if they weren't such good friends. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, uh, Wadsworth arrives in the middle of the day with this really sick, you know, scrawny red-headed kid on uh, Miles Merrily's doorsteps in this magical house in the, in the um, Mill Valley Canyons. Mm-hmm. You know, 545 West Blackdale, I could go there in a heartbeat. <laughs> and up about a hundred steps, jaggedy steps up to the house, just perched on the hill there. Wow. And dropped me off there, you know, and then went back to Yosemite. And I get nursed back to health. <clears throat> and in the meantime, part of the things we'd done while we were in San Francisco is be productive. I, We'd gotten food stamps. And... I'd gone down to the, you know, the county welfare department to see about getting a pair of glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unbeknownst to me, part of that process involved them, you know, trying to get in contact with anybody who might be able to pay for it, and that was my parents. Yeah. So, health recovered. It's April. I'm, uh, I've hitchhiked back into town one day to go visit because, uh, among other things, the band is going to play their first concert in San Francisco and we're going to go see the band. And, and uh, I'm walking up the street. It's a couple blocks more before I turn the corner and I'm at the house and everything. And I see all the um, guys coming down the street and they see me and they're going... Like that, and I'm going, what the hell? You know, like, 
The FBI was just here looking for you a couple of hours ago. <laughs> um, yeah, and they knocked on the door. And, you know, Tubbs and Randy, I think, had gone down to talk to them. And this mm-hmm. was but as they were leaving, you know, Randy said, uh, we'll sell them to you. <laughs> and, and they said, they just turned around like that and said, how much? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. so anyway, they go, ah, so I'm going, jeez. You know, so I went to the concert that night, uh, the band concert. Yeah. And then it's the weekend, and, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have to turn myself in. And Marilee says, well, if you wait a day, I'll make split pea soup, which was my favorite. <laughs> so, so she kept bribing me to not turn myself in. And then my um, the next weekend rolls around, and Wadsworth shows up and says, I'll just take you to Yosemite with me. <laughs> so, you know, that Sunday evening, you know, we drive to Yosemite. And I wake up in this cathedral of trees yeah. and granite where I then spent the next month uh, deciding, oh boy, I got it. I've got to go to the city, get a job, so I can buy rock climbing equipment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're getting closer. So I, <clears throat> end of um, May, I'm back in San Francisco. And then another old friend from Seattle was working as an auto mechanic, a BMW mechanic. Yeah. Um, and uh, living out in, the, in pretty close to the Hague, but he, we, he lived out in the Mission. So I ended up living with him <clears throat> and another auto mechanic friend and got a job as a bike messenger. And there were, at that time, three or four... Um, bike messenger outfits in downtown San Francisco, and all of them also had a few motorbikes that the mm. older guys drove. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were all one-speed Schwinns that weighed about 30 pounds, 35 pounds each. And these huge freaking bastards, too. And um, <clears throat> got a job, you know, had a map that by 10 days later was falling to pieces in my... In my uh, pocket, but I knew my way around downtown San Francisco, just like that, uh, and uh, was one of their ace bicycle delivery. Nice. You know, it's, first week I worked there, you know, it's, you know, you can get a bonus if you do 30 deliveries a day, every day of the week, and then get a bonus, uh-huh. and it didn't seem like it was worth it to me, and after about two weeks... And I realized it won't be that hard for me to do 30 deliveries a day uh, uh, and get the bonus. Yeah. It'll actually you know, make a difference. It is worth it. Yeah. So I walked in the next day and I told the boss, I said, I'm going to do 30 deliveries today. He said, okay. And uh, I averaged probably close to 50 deliveries a day wow. uh, by the time I'd been there a couple of months. And it's delivering just documents? Oh, all kinds of things. I picked something up at the uh, newspaper office once that must have been lead type. It was in a package about like so, but it weighed, you know, 20 or 30 pounds and just sloshed around in my oh, <laughs> Just all kinds of things. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, so there were about, on any given day, there were about 20 of us, three or four riding uh, motorbikes and about 20 of us riding bikes. 
Uh, so the end, you know, and then we were Allen's delivery service, and our main competitors were Speedy, and they were just, you know, up the street a ways, and you know, we got along with them, and we'd meet, and a friendly rival, and they yeah. they had like twenty or thirty bike riders, and you'd stop on corners and share a joint, <laughs> yeah, uh, meet at the same ca- check cashing place, you know, every Friday night, <laughs> check cash your check, get a bottle of wine, yeah. <clears throat> You know, it was copy Rolling Stone. and So. You're making the money to buy the climbing equipment. Yeah. And I'm starting to buy equipment. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've bought a sleeping bag and a down jacket and you know, all these things. And <clears throat> really enjoying San Francisco. Yeah. Um, you know, ever in the back of my mind, you know, the FBI. <clears throat> um, and... One of our regular delivery stops was the federal building in San Francisco, and routinely, I mean, I must have made a dozen deliveries over the six months to the DEA office there, <laughs> and which is also FBI office. And every time I'd walk up those steps, I'd just be doing this little prayer, not today, please. <clears throat> yeah. October twenty ninth, nineteen sixty nine. It is a drop dead gorgeous fall day in San Francisco. And it was just gorgeous. You know, temperature must have been 70, 75 degrees. Just beautiful light. <clears throat> I'm tooling around, you know, making my deliveries. Um, and San Francisco in those days, all of Market Street was being torn up for BART. And every other street in downtown, PG&E, or, uh, was uh, Pacific Gas and Electric was tearing up for infrastructure work. Mm-hmm. And so it's a real maze down there. But I mean, I knew that place. I was good. It must have been about just after noon. I'm pedaling across Market Street, and there's this guy on, I hear this screaming, and there are a bunch of cops surrounding this guy's naked from the waist up, and they're handcuffing him, and he's on the sidewalk, you know, squirming around, just screaming his head up, and I'm thinking, God, I don't ever want to be in handcuffs. And <clears throat> two o'clock rolls around, I've got three or four deliveries in my basket, uh, and the last one in the baskets for the DEF, I said, uh, at the federal building, and I make an office to the, uh, delivery to this medical dental building. Um, like I said, I was one of four guys that, we got our dispatches primarily by, we had these phones scattered around downtown that we could use and, or making phone calls from offices. But since I was one of the aces, I got a radio and I could dispatch mm-hmm. immediately. And I walk out the building, my bike's leaned against the uh, the building, so I, I stop and I'm ready to call in and say I'm leaving such and such address. You know, next stop is such and such. And you know how you get that feeling that sometimes somebody's standing real close oh, to yeah. your space. And I turn around, and there's this guy in a suit, hat, glasses, and he's just looking at me. And I thought, yeah, fucking weirdo. Yeah. I turned around, and this was before the word cloned came into being, but 
I swear, these guys were clones. They were peas in the pod. You know, I turned around, and there were two guys who looked just like him. Glasses, you know, same suits, ties, hats. And they're looking at me. And one of them starts to say, are you David Jensen? And the other one starts to say, you're in a lot of trouble. And I'm already sticking my hands out <laughs> and saying, it sure looks like it, doesn't it? <laughs> out come the cuffs. And I said, wait, I got to call my boss. And I called in and I said, this is Jensen at 590 Post Street being arrested by the FBI. Would you send somebody for my bike? And Daniels, he's the boss's son. The boss was a total alcoholic who mostly just showed up and left everything to Dean. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> What? Say that again? This is Jensen. Okay. And then, then I turned around as they're putting the cuffs on. I, I said, you know, you guys could have waited 15 minutes and saved yourself a trip. I would have been there. So, you know, off we go to the federal building where I get I get fingerprinted. Yeah. You know, and so they have some little you know, FBI junior guy fingerprinting me and he keeps going. In screwing it up. He's fighting me. No, he's not. So finally one of the senior guys gets my clean set of prints. Yeah. <laughs> and off I go to the um, San Francisco County Jail for the night, which was great. They wouldn't let me keep the book because I always carried the book around with me in case I got busted. <clears throat> you know, so I'd have something to read. And uh, it was classic, though. You know the cartoons? The uh, spray guns that are like the cylinder across like that. And then, have you ever seen these things? With a plunger. Oh, yeah. 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 Like Full of DDT. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't believe they're actually, you get into the jail uniform and they're de you know, spraying oh, with this stuff. God. <laughs> so, I'm in a cell with this. The 60s idiot who's probably my age and maybe a little younger you know long blonde hair a beard who's gotten busted for like the second or third time for selling LSD to an undercover cop and I mean the guy was an idiot yeah. and then another guy who got busted who tried to sneak in from the country from Germany huh. who <clears throat> knew his way around the airplanes because he was in the uh, jet mechanic in Germany. So he's going to get deported. So then I saw a judge the next day on, on the 30th. Um, I think I'd made my one phone call. I think I'd probably called Miles and Marilyn. Uh -huh. um, but the next day, you know, the, um, the feds wanted me to be kept in custody before, and then shipped up to Seattle. And the judge said, ah, oh, no, he's not, you know, so... That afternoon, I walked back into the um, uh, work and said, uh, do I still have a job? And Dean's going, of course you do. Of course, he's the one who told him about where to find me. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> that same afternoon, one of the older guys, one of the motorbike riders found me and said, uh, he had, he'd been looking for me that afternoon to try and tell me that the other guy had been in. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Oh my God! Wow. So over the course of the next month, I went through about three court hearings in uh, San Francisco, where the uh, 
judge kept getting increasingly pissed at the prosecutors, you know, because uh, they kept having basic facts, you know, my middle initial wrong, the spelling of my last name wrong, just all this stuff. Yeah. So finally, there's this bang the gavel and says, he can go back to Seattle under his own cognizance. Uh, you know, can't you guys get anything right? <laughs> so meanwhile, at the same time, they have the first ever lottery for the draft. Uh-huh. You know, so because the draft was so unpopular that they went to this lottery system that based on your birth date, and they never drafted anybody higher than like I think 116. Yeah. Uh, my first drawing was 365 out of 366. Nice. Of course, I'd been arrested two weeks earlier. But <laughs> <laughs> and that following year, uh, it was like 306. My birthday came up like 361 or something. <laughs> Beautiful. Wow. So um, during the course of that, uh, so I was getting ready, winding down the job, going back to Seattle, which I kind of wanted to do anyway. Um, skipped going to Altamont, where I would have had a front row seat for the uh, Hells Angel riot. Because, you yeah. know, my friend Stephen, son of Miles and Marilyn, uh, he and his best buddy Terry and I were all going to go to Altamont for the Free Rolling Stones concert, but at the last moment, uh, I decided to... Uh, not go because I wanted to go bouldering in Berkeley with James, whom I rehooked up with finally and found out his story. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank God. <laughs> That's stressing me out. <laughs> James never showed it's up. up. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, Stephen and Terry ended up running into friends who had a big flatbed truck that was parked right next to the stage for the entire concert. So oh, they were like eyewitnesses shit. to the entire thing. God. And they'd gone to Woodstock that summer. So, <clears throat> they were all set. Yeah. Uh, so then it was, you know, back up to, you know, December, late December, back in 69, back up to Seattle. Wow. And it was pretty funny. Because uh, I set out hitchhiking back. And I only remembered this... Um, a few days ago, thinking about this. So I, I, with another friend from Seattle who had uh, shown up in the Bay Area for a while, so we said, well, hitchhike back to Seattle together. So there we are on University Avenue uh, hitchhiking, and these two guys come along and try and sell us a television set. Now we're not interested. Yeah, that's and at some point I turned to rest and I said, I wonder how far those guys got, and we looked, and then about a block away, and there's a cop car. <laughs> they hadn't gotten very far. <laughs> but we got a ride, and we got a ride with this young woman. She picked us up and one other hitchhiker, and she was going back to her folks' place in Chico, of all places. And she said, oh, you can stay at my mom's tonight. And her dad was serving 30 days for drunk driving. He was retired. He was in his early 40s, but uh, he had invented something. He was rich, but decided uh, he would just do the jail time rather than you yeah. know, the fact. But there's mom, you know. You know, here are these three hitchhikers whose daughters yeah. brought home. We spend the night. She makes us breakfast, and it's, you know, 
I'll, gives I'll us a ride you. out 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 to the freeway to <laughs> to continue hitchhiking, and we got as far as um, Eureka. And Russ and I, after spending a couple of hours, just decided, oh, screw it, let's uh, take a Greyhound. Mm -hmm. So we were walking to the Greyhound station in Eureka there, and these two guys in suits come out and out of a out of a restaurant and start to get in the car, and and then they look at us and they walk over and want to see our ID and they're FBI agents. And the first thing I tell them is, "Oh, it's too late. Your your buddy's already arrested me a couple of months ago." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too late. I think they were a little disappointed. I don't know if I've ever seen the FBI agent just out and about. Well, yeah. And then in January of 1970, I had to present myself at the uh, federal courthouse here in Seattle to um, have a court date set. Mm -hmm. And um, so I walked in there bright and early one morning and, you know, court clerk says, sets me a court date and then as I'm walking out she says do you have an attorney and I said what she said do you have an attorney and I said no I don't she said can you afford one and I said no and she said well then we'll have to provide you one <laughs> well wait <clears throat> and only in America <laughs> all these resources to arrest me and then all these resources to defend <laughs> you yeah <clears throat> I mean, it's a great country. Uh, so she made a couple of phone calls, and the people that she contacted didn't feel that they uh, could do a good enough job. They, they were uh, so, like the uh, third or fourth phone call she made, uh, the guy said, "Send him on down." And she wrote down the name, and I recognized the name. His name was David Hood, and uh, I knew the name because. Any number of my friends had had him when they'd been arrested for uh, uh, dealing or drugs or stuff, you know, mm -hmm. back in the um, in '67 and '68, because that's all he did was drug and draft cases. And mm -hmm. He was one of the best and most expensive attorneys in town. And um, I walked down to his office in the Hope Building and talked to him for a bit. And he made one phone call and said, uh, "Your court appointment's uh, canceled." They've explained it's all a big mistake, and <clears throat> they turned me over to his junior partner, Jeffrey Steinborn, who is still Google Jeffrey Steinborn and uh, anything connected with pot in the last 30 years in this town, and you'll see Jeffrey Steinborn involved with it. Um, and so Jeffrey Steinborn made a few phone calls, and then... Um, they said, you know, well, we'll just get you inducted again, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah. And then they kept telling me over the course of months, you know, I said, he said, you know, if you refuse this time, they'll just throw you in jail. Yeah. And I got another induction notice finally, and I called him out, and he said, well, whatever you do, don't go in. It'll take months to get around to doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, in 1971, I... Um, did walk into an induction center, and by that time they'd moved it to Elliott Avenue, mm -hmm. uh, where I spent about three or four hours, and was then informed that I had a personality disorder that 
made me unacceptable for induction or enlistment in any branch of the armed services. Uh, basically, don't call us and we won't call you. Yeah. <clears throat> nice. Seems like it should have been the yeah. agreement. After I started, you know, as soon as I got there, I started handing out these why bother cards. <clears throat> on one side says the system does not work, and on the other side, in very large print, it says why bother. <clears throat> And there was this one Marine who really got pissed. Yeah. You know, he took me, I could make you shut up. I'm not trying to bother you, man. Realizing that even my opening my mouth and uttering a vowel was pissing him off. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah, that's, that's, that's some bulky... Shit so right there, there, you know, now we're into the 70s. But as my friend Walt Crowley pointed out, the 60s didn't really end until about 73 or 74. <laughs> I, what do we, we might have to give this guy some episodes. A couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, Great story. Man. That's... Making our job pretty easy. It's a little version of uh, on the road. On the road, I know. I'm amazed that I just can't believe the how everything works. How do you know where the Greyhound station is? What do you just know? <laughs> how do you know you're in San Antonio? Well, so you read all those books, and like the Greyhound's always like hitchhiking isn't working out. We tried the train. It's like Greyhound's always like the last. I know. Option. I know. It's like okay, well. I just I can't we'll take that. the bus. So the people are okay with you getting on the trains, just jumping on. Oh, uh, which one's going west? Uh, yeah. What? <laughs> so many questions. They're they're working at cross purposes with the other train people. Yeah. I have no fucking idea. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Hell of a life. Miraculous. That's, yeah, that was that was great. Coincidental. Coincidental. Very. I'm enchanted. <clears throat> I'm, I'm enchanted. I knew I would be. You know, some of those people from those days I'm still in touch with. And God, I hope so. Yeah. What happened to the rugs? Uh, you know, they. I think in turn some of those got stolen from Rufus, which is, you know, only yeah. karma. Yeah, and, nature uh, of the beast there. Ended up here and there. And Rufus actually suffered some karma too. He and, and three others went off to do to Colorado to do some backpacking there, and he ended up you know, having a, a serious broken leg. And huh. I think it even airlifted out. Oh boy! Any closing thoughts you wanted to give? Some of it I'd do all over again. Some of it I probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. All right, leave me. Well, thank you. Thank you. you. Uh huh. Pleasure. The sweet, pretty things on Vietnam, of course. The city fathers they're trying to endorse. The reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse. But the town has no need to be nervous. Can you believe we only made it to 1970? And I want to thank David again for sharing his tale. Kind of a fifle goes to the 60s 
if you're familiar with An American Tale. They definitely should have made that version. The music from today's podcast is The Velvet Underground, Creedence Clearwater Revival, and Bob Dylan. Uh, check out the website, we need to talk podcast.com. Other than that, see you next week. The hysterical bride in the penny arcade Screaming she moans, I've just been made Then sends out for the doctor who pulls down the shade And says my advice is to not let the boys in Now the medicine man comes and he shuffles inside He walks with a swagger and he says to the bride Stop all this weeping, swallow your pride